the Nightwalker light. Aisha! Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. And this is our first cartoon episode. Uh, and man, there were so many candidates for what we should do as our first cartoon on the show. There was just so many great ones in the 80s. In fact, we had so much trouble deciding on what cartoon to do a show about first that we uh, started to do a big show about Saturday morning cartoons of the 80s. Like, not even all of them, just the ones that we liked. And it was just too big. It was just too much. And that's just the Saturday morning shows. It didn't include all the stuff that we used to love from before and after school. So we decided to, to narrow it down and start with just one cartoon that we loved. Uh, and we wanted to do something that we not only loved back when we were kids, but something that holds up today. And after rewatching it, I think we both agree that Dungeons and Dragons, which first aired in 1983, is up there with the best cartoons of the 80s. And I would say of all time. A hundred percent. Now, before we, we talk about this Saturday morning classic i feel like we should talk a bit about saturday morning cartoons themselves because of course they're not a thing anymore uh i mean why would they be kids can watch literally any show ever made <laughs> at any time i've talked to my kids about the the non on-demand way that tv used to work and they've seen the only time they've actually seen it is in hotels and they think it's hilarious like it's super novel they'll turn on the tv and one show will be on and then that'll end and they'll sit there and they'll seriously they'll sit there and go what's on next what's on next like all excited but back then like it wasn't fun because if a show was on at a certain time of day that was that if you missed it you missed it uh if you decided you wanted to watch something else on another channel instead you missed it. Or if somebody else in your house with the one TV that we had yep. wanted to watch something else, you had to miss it. Uh, and that was hard enough for my kids to wrap their heads around. Then when I explained that there were other shows, it was like another level of special shows that were only on one time a week and you had to get up early on a non-school day. I had a big poster, a poster board, a matrix of shows and showtimes hanging up next to my bed to make sure I knew exactly what I wanted to watch when that concept really blew their minds it's incredible because it truly was a different time not only in the way that we consumed our media but even in the very idea of writing for these shows right now they can write for lots of different forms it can be a movie it can be a short form it can be a multi-season production but back then lots of things had to be able to be played out of order they were written for the idea that they would one day be in syndication ideally <laughs> perpetually in syndication yeah. which made a lot of the early stars gazillions of dollars and it's almost unimaginable now but we really had very little foresight about how long a show had been on what episode we were watching i never knew any of the titles unless you read tv guide or even if there was anything remotely like a macro story arc so a lot of times i feel like i'd see the same episode sometimes three and four times of a show which was always kind of maddening and infuriating You're like where's the rest of the episodes and that meant there were tons of episodes that you would probably never see and only later did I really learn about the fact that there were larger arcs and was able to fully understand the beginnings and endings of these kinds of shows you mentioned tv guide that's something I have yet to blow my kids minds with that you had to get this little paper book to tell you <laughs> when your shows were on 
yeah, they can pick a show on Netflix and just binge the whole thing. And, and the writers of that show can create it with a very specific overarching story, which they do a lot of the times now. But back then, you know, the fact that, that wasn't the case, that has to be why most, if not all of the shows that we watch, D&D definitely did this, explained their entire premise in the intro to the show. Every week you got, you know, the main characters, the, the premise of the story, the bad guys, the conflict, and you had to sit through it every time. There was no uh, Netflix skip intro button. Because there was no Netflix. Right. Uh, one of the greatest inventions ever, that skip intro button. <laughs> so before we talk about this Saturday morning cartoon, uh, a little bit of Saturday morning cartoon history. They were technically born in 1949 with a show called Crusader Rabbit, which was actually the first cartoon ever created specifically for TV. You know, there was stuff in the theaters, animation in the theaters that sometimes would make it to TV, but this was the first time something was specifically made for television. But Saturday morning cartoons, as we really know them, started in earnest in 1966, and that was the first time all three major networks aired blocks of animation in the Saturday morning time slot for the first time. Before we go any further, we, we have to talk about an important part of the Saturday morning ritual. It's 1983. Lil Biggs in his jammies is sitting <laughs> down in front of the TV. CBS Channel 2 is on, ready for, for Dungeons & Dragons. What do you have a big bowl of in front of you? What kind of cereal? Mm, there were so many great cereals back then. The cereal that comes to mind around this time in our lives was... Kellogg's C-3PO's, mm -hmm. which was a Star Wars-themed, ridiculous, sugar-coated, sugar bomb kind of cereal. Yeah. And I just have a distinct memory that we had that for a couple of years on an, in an ongoing fashion in our house. Everything, everything and everyone that we watched had its own cereal. Mr. T had a cereal. <laughs> Donkey Kong had a cereal, which I think was similar to my, I think overall my favorite, which was Captain Crunch mm. with the Crunch Berries and just the way it would just shred the roof of your mouth when you <laughs> ate it and then you had the the crunch berries kind of soothe the pain a little bit and all the monster cereals oh god i want cereal now yeah i mean I, we were a big count chocula family i loved it yeah i was a booberry man myself so in 1983 we weren't playing dungeons and dragons it had been around for about 10 years at that point but we barely even knew what it was uh, I knew it was a game. I have, I have this memory. This one time, my older brother brought me over to his friend's house, and I was friends with the friend's little brother, who was our age. And while our older brothers, you know, smoked pot and listened to Led Zeppelin and talked about Lord of the Rings <laughs> in the other room, my buddy took me into his brother's room and showed me his brother's D&D stuff, and it was very weird. I remember the rule book, and it had that gorgeous, iconic illustration you know of like the big red dragon the warrior and the big red dragon um and there were all these crazy dice the three-sided and the eight-sided and 20-sided we'd get to know them later as we started playing DD and other rpgs but at the time i had no idea what they were and i remember being like well, where's the board and my friend was like there is no board <laughs> and i was like what so we knew D&D was a game of some kind. Definitely. My earliest memory of Dungeons and Dragons as a concept is pretty similar. An older cousin showed me a rule book of some sort. And then there were lots of them. I mean, we, I think even before our time, there were all sorts of different specialized books. And it had this gorgeous drawing of a 
classical wizard on the cover. And as I flipped through, my seven or eight-year-old brain was actually struggling to understand what all these spells were with all these very detailed information. And I was sort of teetering on the idea that this was real magic. So I kind of left that mm. being like, whoa, this is like a real, this is a real spell book. How, <laughs> how, do we, how come I haven't heard about this before? How do we get this into our regular lives? Let's, uh, should we do a, a, just a quick, very basic rundown of what Dungeons & Dragons actually is, like what a pen and paper RPG actually is? Definitely. So RPG stands for role-playing game. As we said, there's no board. You create a character based on different rules you'll find in the different rule books. Let's say you want to be a wizard, and you roll dice to sort of create your character, the different stats and stuff. And then when you have your guy all ready to go, the DM or dungeon master or game master, DM is a, is a D&D specific term, will lead you through a story. There were all sorts of adventures uh, you could buy, all sorts of story modules you could buy. Or if you had one super creative game master, like the guy we used to play with, who would just come up with these amazing stories to lead you through. So it's all imagination and, and stuff. Very cool. A lot of fun. Again, we had no idea what this was back at the time. Uh, we also had no idea, I don't think, about all the controversy surrounding Dungeons & Dragons. I think we learned about that later in life. Much later, yeah. Yeah. The game was blamed for multiple suicides in the early 80s. There was a movie based on one of them, the Tom Hanks 1982 classic, <laughs> Mazes and Monsters. I feel like I've seen it when it was running on TV. Sometimes I'd catch parts of it when they were running around caves and doing all this crazy stuff. The mother of one of the suicide victims unsuccessfully sued TSR, who was a publisher of D&D, and went on to form Bad B-A-D-D, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons in 1983, and she described the game as a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion. Uh, I'm glad she pointed out what kind of perversion. There's several. <laughs> it's very specific. Uh, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics. Uh, divination and other teaching necromantics <laughs> it sounds like so nice acrobatics but yeah with dead things their campaign was so big that patricia pulling the, the the mother the founder went on 60 minutes along with gary gygax who created D D. so this this was big mainstream news this is a big deal so it's kind of surprising given all the heat that this game was getting that marvel wanted to license the cartoon rights to D&D for a show. Checks out. This, along with the, the licensing of the toy rights to LJN in 1982, I mean, it almost certainly had to be a play by TSR to try to make their brand seem more family-slash-kid-friendly. And it worked, because the cartoon did really well. D&D uh, &D became more of a household name. The cartoon premiered in the fall of 83 on CBS, and it's about a group of friends, teenagers, who go on a Dungeons & Dragons ride at a carnival and actually end up in the fantasy realm of the D&D world. They're greeted by Dungeon Master, a wise-looking little old fella uh, who gives them all magical weapons. And I'd like to point out that there is a lot of suspicious similarities to Master Yoda and yes. the Dungeon Master, right? The ancient, wise, and mysterious teacher, the short stature, the odd head shape, and, of course, the cryptic and stilted way of speaking ties these two together. And, of course, we had met Master Yoda for the first time in 1980's Empire Strikes Back just three years prior to the show. Now, as we said, all of this happens in the, the one-minute intro to the show. We don't actually see an episode where they get on the ride, like an origin episode. Like we said, so many of the cartoons we watched back then had to, to lay out the whole premise, everything at the beginning of the episode. And in this intro, we actually get a lot of info about the real world Dungeons & Dragons, the game. 
Uh, we get some official lingo thrown at us. We just talked about a dungeon master, right? The guy who leads the game mm. and sort of guides the party through the story as the dungeon master in the cartoon does. And when he shows up and gives the kids their magic weapons, he also gives them each a, a corresponding uh, title or character class, as the game would put it. So there's Hank, uh, sort of the leader of the group, the ranger. He's the guy with the coolest weapon in cartoon history that we absolutely loved, right? I mean, this is my dream weapon. You know, it's the perfect, and it really seems like it'd be the perfect destructive weapon. He has unlimited Olympian thunderbolts at his fingertips, right? There's no quiver. He doesn't run out of arrows. He doesn't run out of it. It's incredible. And you'd expect them to be incredibly powerful. But in the show, it's hilarious. They do essentially everything except what you'd expect them to do. You'd imagine they'd rip through stuff and burn things in their path. But usually they're often seen binding things. Yeah. They can also serve as just like a light bulb or a flare, (laughs) which is cool in its own way but kind of like random it should be like a secondary use and then they can even be like a rope or a bridge which is bizarre and interesting and the one thing they almost never do is actually pierce anybody or anything bobby's club we're about to get to that similarly can lay low a mountain and that's about all he does with it he just is always hitting the ground to rattle everybody around and smashing open corridors and mountains for them to traverse and this of course doesn't even mention the fact that their weapons are taken from them so often in episodes that it's practically a staple oh multiple times (laughs) per episode sometimes yeah it's crazy put like a little uh lanyard on them for crying out loud (laughs) they're always losing them when we uh started playing Dungeons and Dragons, the actual game, I made a character who was an archer and uh, like a big fat baby, I refused to play until our friend who was leading the game agreed to let me have the same kind of magical bow that Hank has (laughs) in the cartoon. This bow, it's just, so for those of you who have never seen it, it's just a bow. There's no string or anything, but you hold the bow and you pull back and these, you know, energy arrows appear and you can just fire as many as you want. Super cool. We all wanted it. There is Sheila, the thief who can turn invisible with her magic cloak. Her little brother, Bobby, who's the barbarian with the club that uh, Biggs just mentioned. Eric, the cavalier who has this magic shield. And he's voiced by Don Most, who most people would know as Ralph Malf from Happy Days. First of all, I I didn't make that connection as a kid. Me neither. um, But now that I hear it, like, I can't not hear Ralph Malf. It's so funny. He's this very recognizable voice. I keep expecting him to say, like, sit on it, Potsy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the whole time he's like the spoiled rich kid and like is he really even their he's is he their friend like nobody seems to like him it's true you wonder how how was he with them that day at, at the actual carnival and he he really he really is an interesting character because he often is disagreeing with the rest of the group and we actually read that the series developer explained that this was mandated by parents groups and consultants to push the then dominant pro-social moral for cartoons of the quote group is always right the complainer is always wrong unquote this is a bizarre thing right especially these days i feel like what a crazy time it was that they really wanted to keep this message that the complainer was wrong and you should just kind of conform. It's a little scary. And it makes me think of this concept of Pyronian skepticism. So this is a kind of out there, but there is a school of skeptical inquiry founded by Pyro in the 4th century BC. And the idea basically is that you take a thought and you just flip it around. You do the exact opposite and you see what that yields. And what's remarkable, I learned about this from reading a book by Peter Thiel. He's the eccentric billionaire guy who co-founded PayPal with Elon Musk. Sometimes they call them the PayPal mafia. And 
And his thing is he likes to flip around these issues to see if conventional wisdom is wrong. And he calls this Pyronian skepticism. And he said, quote, maybe I always do have this background program running where I'm trying to think of, okay, what's the opposite of what you're saying? And then I'll try that, he says. It works surprisingly often, unquote. And I thought it was kind of a neat counterpoint. And what's really interesting, too, about the character of Eric the Cavalier in the show, if you look back, many times he's being difficult and disagreeing, and then the dungeon master comes and says, you're right, Eric, you're right, Cavalier. Like, he actually is finding some solutions, despite the fact that there is this pro-social moral for the cartoon. There's Diana the Acrobat. She has this magic extending staff. She calls it a javelin at least once, once, uh, which is weird because it's totally not a javelin is like a spear type thing that you throw. And this is not, it's clearly like a, like a staff. Mm -hmm. Um, she uses it as a weapon as like a pole vault. Is that a verb? Do you pole vault or is it a noun? Do you have a pole vault? I don't know, but she does that (laughs) with it. She's an acrobat and it's actually pretty powerful more than once. She spins it around and just like shreds the bad guy's weapons. Uh, another time she jammed it into the mouth of this giant, dragon-like creature that was about to eat her. Uh, and he s- bites down and snaps it in half with his jaws. You see both pieces fall to the ground. She just picks them up and just whoop, puts them back together. So it's pretty powerful. And then we have uh, finally Presto, the magician. He gets a magic hat that he can theoretically produce anything out of. Of course, he's always messing up and pulling out the wrong thing to comedic effect. There's some greatest American hero vibes going on there, right? He never quite knows how to use <laughs> totally. it. Totally. But he saves the day more than once. I really like Presto. Oh, and of course, there's Uni, the little baby unicorn they meet. She runs up to Bobby, becomes Bobby's little buddy, his little pet. Uh, so the whole show is about the friends searching for a way back to our world. And every week, we get a new possible way back, teased. Uh, but it never ends up working out, because, of course, then the show would be over. They're bad guys, of course, that they have to contend with. The main one being one of the great bad guys of the 80s, I think, Venger. The evil sorcerer voiced by Peter Cullen, who played Optimus Prime in Transformers. The uh, the actor who played Megatron, Frank Welker. He's in this too. He's Uni, the cute little unicorn. And like a thousand other characters. When when you get to know these guys' voices, you kind of realize that they voice most of the supporting characters in the show. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Prolific voice actors, especially Frank Welker. He was in uh, Real Ghostbusters. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, all sorts of stuff. The other big bad is Tiamat, a powerful five-headed dragon that Venger seems to actually fear. Maybe the one thing that he fears in this world. It's sort of an evil versus evil trope, and they often do face off, although a lot of times they both seem kind of invulnerable, frankly. Tiamat is interesting. In the religion of ancient Babylon, uh, she was a primordial goddess of the sea, mating with Absu, the god of fresh water, to produce these younger gods. And what's fascinating is she's referred to as a woman, but some sources identify her with images of a sea serpent or a dragon. And in the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian epic of creation, she gives birth to the first generation of deities and is actually later slain by the storm god Marduk. But not before she had brought forth the monsters of the Mesopotamian pantheon, including the first dragons, whose bodies she filled with, quote, poison instead of blood, unquote. So this is not the most well-known cartoon of the 80s. It doesn't get usually mentioned alongside stuff like Thundercats and He-Man and G.I. Joe and Transformers. We have always remembered it as one of our favorites. And unlike some of the other old favorites we watched in preparation for this episode, like Thundar the Barbarian... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which we rewatched some of, and uh, boy, 
Like, I get why we loved it as little kids back in 1980, but now... Not so much uh, now. It's rough. It's a rough watch. This one is interesting because Dungeons & Dragons is usually classified as a Western animation style, but it was actually put together by a Japanese company, Toei, and they did the animation for the whole series. So I think it does have a bit of an anime feel at times, which works really well to its advantage. I mean, I think it, it the animation is quite excellent overall. Yes, it still looks good, still holds up. You've rewatched every episode. I've seen a bunch. I'm still working my way through it. There's 27 episodes in total. Uh, and it's just so damn good. It's, it's for, totally formulaic, as most shows were back then, right? The kids are looking for a way home. Venger wants their magical weapons, usually succeeds in getting them from them. Like you said, they can't <laughs> hold on to these stupid weapons to save their lives, but they end up getting them back. They need those tile trackers on there so they can find them. At the beginning of the episode, Dungeon Master appears out of nowhere every single time. They're like, Dungeon Master. Like, why are they still surprised? After like the sixth or seventh time, I don't know why they're still, why they're not walking around, like looking over their shoulder, like, okay, come on, where is he? He's going to pop out. But he shows up, gives them some kind of riddle that will you know, ideally lead them towards a, a way home. That's basically every episode, but the stories were really exciting and sometimes really intense, right? Rewatching this and kind of remembering how intense it was back then. I was surprised. There's one pretty infamous episode written by Michael Reeves, who actually wrote a few episodes called the dragon's graveyard. And here's what he had to say about it on his website and about the show itself. D and D was a very dark edgy show for its time. Sort of the gargoyles of the eighties. Have you seen that, by the way, Gargoyles? I've never seen that. It's so good. Uh, and credit must go to Judy Price, he says, then president of the children's programming for CBS, for taking a chance on it and not playing it safe and slapping another Care Bears clone on the air instead. <laughs> we took the show about as far as you could go on kids TV at the time. As an example, the script for The Dragon's Graveyard, a second season episode I wrote, in which the kids contemplate killing Venger in order to find a way home, caused a battle royale with broadcast standards and practices, the chances an episode with a plot like that one, uh, like the one described above, even making it past the initial three-line pitch were, and still are, about as likely as Superman snorting kryptonite. By the way, that sounds like a great name for a rock band. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> we're going to put a, a video of that episode with the commentary by Michael Reeves. Uh, just go to McQuaidRK.com, click on episodes, and find the show's page. Or you can use a little link in the podcast episode description. So this show introduced us not just to the world of Dungeons and Dragons, but kind of fantasy in general, right? Orcs, elves, dwarves, dragons, wizards. Until we were old enough to read the real deal, I feel like this was our Lord of the Rings, right? It felt that epic when we were young. Definitely. This kind of planted the seeds and created our standards for all of these ideas. And the music is fantastic. Some of the best, despite the fact that unlike a lot of shows back then, it did not have some catchy theme song uh like pole position or thundercats or muppet babies <laughs> it's a good song that that's definitely an earworm isn't it that terrible muppet babies <laughs> why'd you do that uh yeah the the composer johnny douglas also composed for spider-man and his amazing friends another beloved show and i love listening to the cues i guess they call them library cues you know those are those little little tiny short pieces of music that are often used over and over 
in situations. So there's kind of the lighthearted one that has light motif to make everyone feel relaxed. There's the danger one and so on. And in fact, I think they actually might be identical. Some of them at least are identical between the shows. So you kind of have this, this lexicon of what to expect given what the music is doing. And now all these years later, like they still have meaning to me when I hear that bombastic ditty, when things get heated, I kind of start tensing up. We know something bad's going to happen. I guess that makes sense. Dungeons and Dragons and, and Spider-Man and his amazing friends having so much in common musically, uh, now that we know they're both Marvel productions shows, right? Mm. Johnny Douglas did a fantastic job with this. The end credits theme. It's so good. It has just this epic kind of feel to it that made it, at, even back then, you know, a lot of shows had great music, great theme songs, but this just felt, especially like I said, this this end credit theme it just felt more sophisticated than the other stuff to me. And I think it still sounds great. So while, as we said, D&D doesn't get remembered as quickly as some other Saturday morning cartoons, it was pretty big back when it was on. According to Wizards of the Coast, who acquired Dungeons and Dragons... From TSR. Maybe they took over TSR. I don't know, but it's their thing now. Um, On their website, they say that the show spawned more than 100 different licenses. And if you look, there's a ton of merchandise around this time uh, from Dungeons and Dragons. And the show led its time slot for two years, which is really impressive considering that unlike 99% of the other stuff we were watching back then, it was not built around uh, a a toy line. Now, there was a, a Dungeons and Dragons toy line. But it wasn't based on the show. It was licensed out to LJN and hit stores uh, a year before the cartoon came out. There was some crossover, right? We got some of the characters and monsters from the toys that made appearances on the show, including the hook horror, right? The big, creepy black monster with the hook hands. That was one of our favorite toys. Yes. Yeah. Along with War Duke, a.k.a. the coolest action figure ever. <laughs> we talked about the, the, those toys, the, part of the advanced D&D toy line on an episode from uh, a while back. Toys of the 80s, part one. Check it out if you haven't. But we had no toys of the characters of the show. And because LJN's licensing deal with TSR didn't include any of the characters created by Marvel Productions for the show, sadly, we never got any. I guess there were some little PVC figurines, like the little, remember like the Smurfs and the California Raisins, the little hard figurine guys that we kind of collected back then. Something like that in uh, Spain was released. Little guys that fetch a hefty price tag now. And... A company called Iron Studio, a couple of years ago, a year or so ago, released this absolutely amazing set of statues, this diorama that fits together. Absolutely gorgeous. A small fortune altogether. Very cool. That's the sound of me salivating. So being the first, uh, this is the first time we've talked about a whole show and not just a movie, right? It's easy to say like, yeah, check that movie out with a whole show to say, go watch the whole thing. It's a little tricky. I mean, you totally can. And we encourage you to because it's great. As of the time of recording this, the entire series, you can find it on YouTube in really good quality. I believe the channel is Dungeons and Dragons TV. Yes. Something like that. And it's from the DVD set. So they're very high quality, almost ridiculously high quality, considering how old the show is. Really nice. The episodes are only about 20 minutes, but there's 27 of them. 
that's a lot. That's like, what, like eight, nine hours of your life there. So we thought we'd tell you about our favorite episodes that you should definitely check out. And if you like these, like you're going to, you know, you're going to love the show. Well, my favorite episode of all, and honestly, one of my favorite cartoon episodes of all time across the whole genre is the one called City at the Edge of Midnight. On the YouTube series, it's listed as episode 16. It originally aired in the second season of the show on September 22nd, 1984. And it is a true masterpiece. The pacing, the acting, the character development. It's an emotional roller coaster and has everything you'd want. Daring escapes, frightening adversaries, sonic scimitars, and newfound friends. It's a tour de force of storytelling I just can't stop cavelling about it. It's unbelievable. My favorite character is a caravan merchant named Ramud, who has lost his daughter and takes the kids on as Urzat children of his own. It's voiced by the inimitable Peter Cullen, again, as we said, the voice of Optimus Prime, Autobots transform and roll out. And he's honestly doing some of the the most incredibly inventive stuff I've ever heard for really what's a bit part, right? I mean, he's kind of playing a tiny little bit part here, but it has stuck with me. And in particular, the line that has stuck with me for 36 years now is when he turns to the camera and says, the Nightwalker lied. Aisha! (laughs) It's so intense. I'm sitting here watching this. The music is surging. I'm like... This is unbelievable. This is the best show. So you have to check this episode out. It will really, if you don't like it, then forget it. You're not going to like the show. But I think if you don't like it, that means there's a problem with you, not with the show. So you need to work on yourself because this is the best thing ever. Was that too strong? No, no. (laughs) If anything, it wasn't strong enough. No, this episode is really great because, first of all, it is one of the only, maybe the only venger free episode Mm. like this is a total side story a total side quest for the characters venger's not there and as you said peter cullen is great and he is this it's not a recurring role as we said um he and frank welker play you know hundreds of characters throughout the the 27 episodes and this is just another character for him but he does so much with it he's so good you know when he first meets the kids he's so funny he's like you know the monsters there's monsters coming to get them and he's like Let's, uh, how do you kids say, knock their socks off? Like, it was just, it's just it's like funny stuff. You keep saying funny stuff like that. This is maybe the scariest episode. It reminds me a lot of uh, another Saturday morning cartoons from the 80s that is way up there, right neck and neck with this for me. And that's the real Ghostbusters. This reminds me of the Boogeyman episode. Yes, yes. Right? The Boogeyman, like the Nightwalker, appears out of like a portal, you know, scaring children, goes back to this creepy realm. And yeah, it was, it was very unusual for the show. It was totally kind of off the formula of the show. So that kind of threw you off. Um, yeah, really, really great, great stuff. And, and Ramud with the kids, you know, there's this great, especially Sheila, this great, like surrogate dad sort of relationship. And you get it. There's a cool moment where they're talking about how great he is. And Eric, you know, the whiny spoiled kid, you get a little glimpse into his life. Cause at one point he's like, you know, he's way better than my dad ever was. So it's like this little thing. You're like, huh, maybe he comes from like a a, a crappy home and that's why he's kind of a jerk. And like, it's this beautiful little thing that, I mean, as kids, I'm sure we just, you know, didn't pay any any attention to. But now it's really great. All those details. Just incredible. So that was my favorite. What was your favorite, Barney? Man, there were so many greats. But I think I'm going to go with one that we uh, talked about earlier that Michael Reeves mentioned. And that is the Dragon's Graveyard. And I think this is actually... A great compliment 
to the episode that you picked, because, well, as I said, that was sort of a departure from the usual formula of the show. This was kind of like the culmination of the formula of the show. You mm. know, it was like it started off pretty much like any other episode. I mean, very in a very exciting way. You kind of jump in in the middle of this big battle with this big frost giant. But uh, like, you know, so many other episodes, the kids are trying to get home and they're, they found a way to do it and they're on their way and Venger shows up, messing up their chance to get back home. And in this episode, you see them all just kind of finally have enough, enough with the whole thing, enough with Venger, uh, Dungeon Master. He shows up as usual. He just appears out of nowhere and he's like, well, children, we need to go help the magical Duke in the castle of what? And like Hank's like, stop, <laughs> just stop. We don't care. They've decided that Venger is the source of all their problems. And if they just get rid of him, they could finally focus on getting home. And while, you know, they never say the word kill, uh, they never say they're going to kill Venger. But, I mean, that's the whole point. That's what they're going to try to do. They decide, you know, we talked about Tiamat the dragon earlier. We, you know, there's a sort of rivalry with Tiamat and Venger. And they're going to go to Tiamat for help in, in finally stopping Venger. And they tell Dungeon Master, like, look, enough. Just tell us where to find Tiamat. And we will be on our way. And, uh, you know, we get this very Star Wars, very Yoda kind of moment with Dungeon Master where he tells them, you know, the, the sort of stuff we hear from, from Yoda when he's, when he's training Luke. So it's a very cool episode. And it's very real. We see the kids like little Bobby, who's this, you know, what do we say, eight-year-old kid? He's crying. It's very intense, man. Everything about it, not just the action and the, and the stuff that Michael Reeves is talking about, but just like the, the feeling that all of this has, you know, built up to this moment with these characters. It, it's great. It's a really great episode. And like I said, I think if you if you watch these two episodes and you like them, then then you're in, you're set, you're going to love the show. Sadly, uh, while there were so many great episodes, we never got a finale. It ended without a proper finale. We never got to see the gang make it back home. And Michael Reeves, again on his website, had this to say about how the series wrapped up. First of all, there's an article he was dispelling the the rumor for that had been going around the internet for a long time that the show, the, the plan was the show was going to end... Uh, with an episode where you found out that the kids were all dead. They died on the roller coaster and were like trapped in hell. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's like, what? And this, and Michael Reeves was like, what are you talking? Like, no, that never, that was never a thing. I don't know how this rumor started, it's but terrible. Yeah. That would have <laughs> messed us up as kids. So he says, as the third season of D and D drew to a close, the series producer and story editor told me CBS was thinking of doing an episode that would quote, close out the season. This is a fairly common practice today, but it was pretty much unheard of back then, particularly in animation. It was decided that the episode, titled Requiem, should end on a note that was both ambiguous and triumphant to cover all bets, because at the time we were doing the script, we didn't know if the show would be renewed for a fourth season or not. According to Gary Gygax, the series co-creator, again, he was one of the creators of D&D itself, uh, the plan was for Requiem to be used as a springboard for a new approach to the show, one in which the kids would be more self-reliant and not dependent on their weapons, Unfortunately, problems with TSR, the D&D parent company, ultimately killed plans for a new season, and Requiem was taken off the production board. I was disappointed, but scarcely surprised. Orphan TV scripts are hardly a rarity, and one either learns to deal with the disappointment or find another line of work. Wow. Now, you can find the script for that episode, Requiem, online. We'll put a link on our site. Uh, again, McQuaidArcade.com. And we're going to add something really cool. So, I guess a while back, maybe... I don't know, 10 years ago or so when they finally released, released like the full DVD set of this show, they put together a radio style drama of the Requiem script, a reading of it. 
starring the actress who actually originally played Sheila on the show. She reprises her role. So that's cool to listen to. And I guess there was a comic, like a digital comic released of it. You can you can see that online. But there's this fan-made video of the final episode of Requiem. And they splice together footage from the show, original artwork, uh, as well as the audio from the audio drama version of the script. It's so cool. Like, it, it's amazing what they have done with this. It was remarkably satisfying and honestly expertly done. I swear it was only about one notch down from the actual show itself most of the time and was far, far better than the first version of this I found, which was kind of a crappy panning through the images from that comic book to those voiceovers. So when it, when you showed me this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is really the animated version and it was a much better and clearer vision. What did you think of the episode itself, how they how they handled the story and how they wrapped things up? I thought it was satisfying and I think they really did hit that triumphant but still a little bit ambiguous in a way although the one we saw they did send well we don't want to spoil it but they they maybe did close it out a little more than the comic book one that i right. saw. i guess the script was left kind of open-ended but the uh the folks who made this amazing fan episode they wanted a much more definitive ending so they added that on there i really liked it i definitely felt like they nailed it it was the transitional episode that could have closed out that season and started things up the next season with a different kind of approach, a different kind of feel, or it was a great end cap to the show itself if they didn't get another season. Before we say goodbye to Dungeons and Dragons, I thought it would be fun if we took yet another internet quiz. <laughs> it's trivia quiz oh, time. Gosh. Here we go. <laughs> we, need a, we need a jingle for this part of the show. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? This is 10 questions about... The D&D cartoon. I'm as ready as I'm going to be. What kind of ride transported the children to the realm? Roller coaster, Ferris wheel, tilt-a-whirl, or tunnel of love? Easy peasy, roller coaster. It does have a tunnel of love kind of vibe, right? You're going into a tunnel with lots of stuff. Um, yes, I'll say roller coaster. I believe coaster. In, the, well, in the parlance of Disney, they call that a dark ride, right? When you're inside ooh. something, they call those the dark rides. This ride's about as dark as it gets, am I right? <laughs> uh, each of the children was given a weapon when they arrived in the realm. What weapon did Diana receive? Javelin, spear, quarterstaff, or baton? See, now that's a trick question because she calls mm -hmm. it a javelin, but we really feel yep. like it is more of a staff, right? Yeah. I think we should go with the show-approved uh, term and say javelin. Okay. And put it on javelin. Uh, Dungeon Master also gives each of the young ones a title along with a weapon. What did he call Sheila? Acrobat, thief, magician, or cavalier? Thief. She's the invisible acrobat. Her magical cloak. That's remarkable. <laughs> Venger was the she force of to, evil. In the she world. comes out of invisibility and tells you what she did. You should have seen all the stuff. Okay, Sheila, we believe you. She's standing there like, ta-da! <laughs> oh, you guys, it was awesome. Oh, Venger was the force That's of evil. Worst. <laughs> Venger was the force of evil in the realm, and the main antagonist... What was one of his most defining features? His helmet only had one horn. He had six fingers on one hand. He walked with a limp. He had the face of a skull. That was that asymmetric horn. Yes. A mythical creature joined the young ones not long after they arrived in the realm. What was it? A baby dragon, a baby unicorn, a baby peg pegasus, or a baby satyr? Ooh, a baby unicorn. Yes. Uni! And I just have to say... Uh, this question, this is a pet peeve of mine. There's no such thing as a baby Pegasus. Pegasus is not a kind of animal. It is a proper noun. It's a creature's <laughs> name. 
saying a Pegasus is like seeing a vampire and calling it a Dracula. Okay. I had to get Thank that off my Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. What, what should we refer to it? Just a winged horse? Sure. Unless Thank it, you. it's Pegasus. Uh, one Avengers minion spends much of his time spying on the children. What was he called? Black Imp, Shadow Demon, Nightmare, or Sneaky Orc? Shadow Demon. Shadow Demon. Yeah, he was awesome. Who was the leader of the children? Bobby, Diana, Hank, or Eric? Good old Hank. Good old Hank. Except yep. that one episode when Hank let Eric be the leader. Yep. And he messed it all up. Tiamat, a five-headed dragon, was the only creature Venger feared. What was not the color of one of her heads? Ooh, this is actually interesting. Red, yellow, white, or black? I know there's a red one. The main big head is red. There's a white head. Boy, I think there's a black one. There might be a yellow one. Boy, I'm going to say... I think there's no yellow. I'm going to go with there's no yellow head. No yellow. Something has like yellow hair on it. There's yellow somewhere. Yes, I think the main head has like the yellow okay. mane, right? right? She's got the... We'll say yellow. Uh, which of the children were related to each other? Hank and Bobby, Sheila and Bobby, Presto and Bobby, Eric and Bobby. Sheila and Bobby. Sheila, of course. Number 10. Oh, what was Presto's real name? Paul, Preston, none was ever given on screen, or Peter? So this is interesting. I actually read something about this in my hyper nerding out. So apparently there's two canon, there's two canonical or two things in canon about this. One is that it was Preston, that he preferred to be called Preston. Okay. The other is that his real name was Albert. But the third thing is that they actually never said it on screen. So Boy, this is a really confusing I thing. I don't remember ever hearing it on screen. Yeah. I mean, that's probably what I'd pick for this quiz. Like Preston in this, would really make sense though. Like that's... It would. But huh. I think the answer is never on screen, but I never have read it. I think there's some comic that came after where they called him Preston. All right, here we go. We are submitting our answers to the internet. Uh, right, 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 right. Uh, baby unicorn, right. Everything right. None was ever given on screen. Correct. Bam. The series Bible says his real name is Albert, but that name was never used on screen. He was either called Presto, Magician, or Wizard. I guess a series Bible is like what the writers use, right? They keep all the scripts and all the terms and stuff for the show. Correct. There is no yellow on Tiamat. Look at that. We are we are experts at Dungeons and Dragons. It. We aced it. Bam. Boy, we're uh, we're closing out the show like a couple little dungeon masters because the average score on that quiz six out of ten. Magic, mystery, adventure, and excitement. What more could a kid ask for in a cartoon? D and D delivered all of that, but also had a lot of heart. It's a testament to the masterful work from animation, voice acting, direction, and music that we're approaching 40 years from its original release, and sitting down to watch these episodes today gives me just as much joy as back then. As Ramud put it, No, no, Master Eric, roll your tongue. Kutrash! And on that note, stay limber. Oh, and there's uni. That was great. I can't do uni very well. It's sort of like that, right? It's like, that's the intro to the show. That just that weird noise. 